You know, I was really, really wrestling with how I wanted to start this morning's message because it's uh, something, not, not so much a convoluted chapter, but it's a chapter filled with so many different things. It's unified by some very, very important questions of Jesus. And at first I thought, well, you know what, I'll, this is what I'll do. I will ask people to tell us, just kind of confession time, when was the last time you asked a question you should not have asked, right? Like, hey, Donna, are you expecting? No? Right? And I thought, no, nah, that's, that's probably getting a little too personal. Then I thought, okay, this is probably more in line with the chapter. A question like, when was the last time you asked a question and somebody said, well, it's none of your business? I figured, well, we'd probably have some fun with that one. And then I thought, well... If you're going to ask a question like that, then you need to lead by example. So that means I would have to tell you a story of when I asked a question and I was told to mind my own business. And then the more I thought about it, I thought, well, well, that's really none of their business. So I don't want to ask that question either. So anyhow. So there's no introduction to this morning's message. That was the introduction. Well, thank you very much, Marlon, for reading the scripture this morning. And um, obviously, you know by now that we are in John chapter 21. And once again, for whatever reason, I am back in a post-resurrection story. And I just can't seem to get out of the resurrection. I don't know why, but, uh, well, at least it's better than mourning and mooning over, over the death. So, uh, there we go. Well... What we do know about John chapter 21 is that it is uh, composed, comprised of some segments and some stories. What makes a chapter very unique is that most people, much, much smarter people than myself, who study the original languages and have a great grasp on archaeology and, and social setting and and history, and all that kind of stuff, language, and the way language is used, and habits of certain writers, they, they all say, you know what, really, John ends at John chapter 20. It just, the whole chapter is dedicated to the resurrection, and it ends at that chapter. Why would John come back and add another chapter 21? And we don't really know why, but there was just a couple more things he wanted to get in there that were important to him, and so he did. And it doesn't take away from the story at all. It just, in some ways, I think for myself, answers a few questions that were still lingering in my own heart and mind. But nevertheless, um, what's important about John 21 is that there is still this looming sense of heaviness surrounding Peter that his uh, protests of allegiance to Jesus back in John chapter 13 at the Last Supper were certainly eclipsed and really shot to pieces by his almost incomprehensible denial of Jesus in the high priest's um, courtyard. When we get to chapter 21 of John, what we realize is that we are now in 
a chapter where we have the first real heart-to-heart conversation recorded in Scripture between Jesus and Peter after such a devastating event as the denial by Peter of Jesus. So that's where we find ourselves. I'm starting in the middle of the chapter simply because... um, The story really about Peter picks up there, and there's a lot more I can say about the beginning parts of the chapter. I'm not going to. It would just muddy up the waters for you. But today we're going to be looking at some questions of Jesus, and I am, yes, piggybacking. Thankfully, Pastor Shannon didn't kick me out of the boat yet, but I am piggybacking on his sermon series and kind of weaseling my way in and there. Um, uh, with this incredible theme of the questions of Jesus. And you know that if there's anything that will upturn or upset your apple cart, metaphorically speaking, it's the questions of Jesus. Because they're the kind of questions that get inside your soul and leave you no rest or peace until you work them through. You just simply can't dismiss yourself and walk away from a question of Jesus because... The very nature of his questions, I think, sometimes are haunting. They, they just will not let you go. So we are in John chapter 21, and there are three parts of this chapter that I want to focus on that are linked together by the questions and the themes that show up here. First I, I, I guess maybe the first place to start is with the actual conversation between Jesus and Peter with regards to the events that have so recently transpired. So kind of going back to the story, we have here just this beautiful interplay between Jesus' painful probing of Peter's heart, his love and his allegiance, and Peter's insistence of his love for Jesus. It's this incredible interplay as they go back and forth, and, and you could almost imagine and maybe even have sympathy and compassion for Peter in light of what he's done to somehow be cornered looking Jesus straight in the eyes and having him ask you, do you love me? In other words, what is not being said is in light of the fact that you even denied that you didn't know me. Do you love me, Peter? I mean, you could almost sense, I I don't know if it's tension, but it's one thing we do know about Jesus that the questions were not intended to shame, to embarrass, to heap extra guilt upon Peter, Jesus being the the quintessential master of the human heart, Jesus wanted to find an entry into his heart to let all of that out to restore him. It's just unbelievable that Peter the rock has hit rock bottom. Following a very public profession of undying loyalty to Jesus, to his closest comrades, and then his denial of Jesus to a hostile crowd... He has been carrying this incredible burden of shame, of cowardice, and remorse. And so Jesus will have to ask him three times before his heart finally collapses, 
collapses open and lets out all of this grief and shame. And I know that much has been made about the words that are used here, you know, the play on words, because um, Jesus uses the word agape for love. Peter uses the word phileo for love. And, you know, I've heard countless sermons, and maybe you've heard some in, on the radio, whatever, that, that makes a really big deal of this. And the truth is, is that the words are not implied to contrast two levels of love, like a, like a God love and a human love. It's, it's just they're, they're, they're both going about looking at the same thing from different vantage points. But the gist is the same. And, and Jesus is saying, Peter, affectionately and in the depths of your heart as a person would love somebody else, do you love me? And Peter finally breaks and he says, Lord, like, you know, read in between the lines. I don't know what else I can say. You alone know. And I find it so beautiful and, and quite interesting at the same time that every time that Jesus hears Peter say, Lord, you know I love you, he, he redirects Peter's love and confession to him to Jesus' family, Jesus' sheep, his, his, his followers, his, his church, his body. It's almost like, I, I know you love me, so feed my sheep, care for my lambs, shepherd my flock. You see, Jesus needs to restore Peter and recommission him to his original call. The, the call of back in Matthew 16 of uh, uh, you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church. He hasn't revoked that call. Interestingly enough, you know, I, I didn't even have this plan, but in Romans chapter 11, I believe, it says that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. In other words, yeah, we may blow it, but God said, I'm not leaving you off the hook. This is not your escape clause. I've called you to do something. Now stop feeling sorry for yourself and get back on your feet and go back at it. That's just for free. I really don't think Jesus was harmed by what Peter did. He was deeply hurt. John, early in, I believe, in chapter 2 or 3, said that Jesus had such a profound understanding of human nature that he would not entrust himself to anyone because he knew what was, John literally says, he knew what was in man. The, the fickleness of the human heart, of how quickly it go hot and cold and dark and light. And Jesus just knew these are, these, these are the people I came to die for. They are fickle, weak, broken, temporal people. Apart from my grace, there would be nothing but darkness. But with my grace, they can be restored. Jesus, in Luke's gospel, as a matter of fact, actually says to Peter, um, Back when Peter was protesting about his incredible love to Jesus, he said, listen, um, I want you to know something that, so, that, that Satan himself has asked permission 
to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that you may not fail and that once you have turned back, you will go and encourage the brothers. Interesting enough, when Peter was protesting his allegiance to Jesus that he would even die with him, before the denial, of course, Jesus, interestingly, he says this, and it doesn't appear in any of the, the Gospels. He says, you know what? You cannot follow me now, but you will later. Just these allusions to the fact that there was something waiting for Peter that he could not even grasp at that time. And so Jesus' understanding of Peter's fallen, broken, weak human nature, his propensity to fail, failure and, and really blowing it, uh, was something Jesus always held in sacred trust as he mentored and apprenticed Peter to be the, the leader of the church. But here, it wasn't just Peter's restoration to his calling that Jesus was concerned about, because Jesus also, or Peter also had a responsibility to care for the flock, to feed the sheep, to literally be the person who would corral the other disciples and apprentices after this tragic event of the death. And even when the resurrection took place and they're still trying to process it and they're still doubting and they're, Peter was supposed to be the, the anchor in the midst of all of that. And so he had some pretty big obligations to fulfill yet. It's interesting enough, there's um, a commentary done on the book of Matthew by um, Dr. Michael Wilkins. He's a teacher in Talbot University. But I love this. What he did is that he kind of took all the episodes in Peter's life in the book of Matthew and kind of um, made a chart of the highs and the lows. An awful lot of lows there, right? <laughs> I think this should serve as an encouragement to all of us that our lives often are represented by that. It's never one single line that we have ups and downs. But anyhow, I'll leave that there. I just wanted to bring that at this point. Um, Jesus' prophecy and Peter's independence. Peter is now restored. He has accepted his responsibility to be faithful to his call, to not walk away from Jesus feed and care for the sheep. And Jesus turns around and kind of slips this into Peter. You know, I, I've had conversations where, you know, good things have been said and you kind of sit down and go, okay, are we good? Yeah, we're good. You sure we're good? Yeah, we're good. Okay, okay now, now that's over. And then boom. <laughs> This is a boom situation for Peter because Jesus tells him, listen, when you were younger, when uh, you were in your prime and you were strong and energetic and, and you were the man, 
um, you would kind of tie your belt. That's a, it's a metaphor for just kind of getting ready for the day. You would tie your belt, and you would go wherever you want to go. The day is going to come when you're going to be old, and you're not going to have that privilege anymore. As a matter of fact, you're not going to be tying your belt, but somebody's going to be tying your hands, and they're going to lead you to where you do not want to go. It was a prophecy of Peter's martyrdom, and that is well documented. Peter, or Jesus, addresses Peter's independence with this prophecy. You see, Peter and Andrew, I, I, I call them the original Splash Brothers. They, they were the, you know, they, they were the, the make-it-happen kind of fishermen. They had a good, prosperous business, probably handed off to them by their fathers. Um, they, they were the men. They were in charge. They did their thing. They worked hard, even in spite of the fact that to be a fisherman was considered to be literally at the bottom rung of social standing and social status. They were good at what they did. They called the shots. They ran their business. They ran a tight ship. <laughs> um, there was something about Peter in his life experience that led him to be the kind of person who really, you know, he wasn't afraid of things. I mean, he wasn't afraid to ask Jesus to challenge him to stand and walk on water. I mean, not too many people would do that. My goodness. Um, he wasn't afraid when Jesus was being arrested to take out a sword and lop off a guy's ear. I mean... You know, Peter was one of these guys who was kind of like, act first, think about it later. But you know, when push came to shove in the high priest's courtyard during Jesus' interrogation, and things quickly went sideways and south for Peter, his sense of self-preservation quickly kicked in. And it's like he had his own contingency plan. He had an exit strategy. His life was on the line. And he knew how to get out of the mess that he did, and he barely got out. But look at the price that he had to pay to get out of the mess that he did. He denied Jesus. I think Jesus is telling Peter that in coming back now, all is forgiven. And yes, you are restored. But let us make sure of this one thing. That the days of being independent, the days of having a contingency plan, a plan B, an option C, an exit strategy for when things go bad, those days are over. That will no longer be part of the old Simon son of Jonah. That belongs to your old life now. Jesus gives Peter a brief glimpse into his future and prophesies that Peter will be privileged to serve Jesus into his later years, but that the day will come when he too will be too old to run away and that he will ultimately face 
what the early martyrs often referred to as the, the glorious privilege of martyrdom. When Jesus says, follow me, he's not only addressing G, or, uh, Peter individually as an apprentice, but I think at this point he's raising the bar a bit. And he's saying, Peter, for the sake of the church, you're going to be called to lay down your life. As I lay down my life for you, my friends, you will lay down your life for others. And of course, history bears witness to the fact that in about 62 AD, Peter was arrested, taken to Rome, and under the madman Emperor Nero was eventually martyred. I know that much has been made of the... I, 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 don't, I don't want to be disrespectful and say folklore that Peter was crucified upside down. We do know that he was crucified. The, the writings that allude to the fact of potentially that he was crucified upside down appeared in the second and third century. So they're, they're very sketchy at best. But what we do know that even when this chapter was written, that Peter had already suffered martyrdom. And he alludes to it perfectly in the second uh, epistle of Peter to what was at that time a scattered and persecuted church. Just so that you know, it needs to be just reiterated just in, in the event that it's kind of lingering, that when Jesus said, your, your hands will be tied Back in these times, crucifixion always began with the tying of the crossbeam to the shoulder of the criminal, of the guilty party. And they would carry that on their back to their place of death before it was ultimately nailed to a piece of wood and then they were raised. So that even challenges our understanding of Jesus, quote-unquote, carrying a cross to a place of crucifixion. But we're not going you know, to lose any sleep over that one. Thirdly, Peter's inquiry and Jesus' priority. And ultimately, this is the question of Jesus that I want to major on. And I'm sure you're thinking, well, by goodness, I mean, if, could you just start it here? <laughs> yeah, I guess I could have started there. But after all this, Peter turns around and he's noticing John following him and Jesus. And, I mean, it's just like Peter, right? You just, just when you think, you know, like the old saying goes, just when you think it's safe to get back in the water, just when you think all is well with Peter and he's good to go, he just kind of like after he prophesies and says, hey, you are the son of the living God, the Messiah, and then right after that, by golly, no one's going to, persecute you, and then Jesus, listen, you're speaking, you're speaking by Satan now, all in the same breath. He turns around, and he looks at Jesus, and he says, well, what about him? And um, Jesus, rather abruptly, almost with a tone, says, um, you know what? If I want him to stay until I come, what is that to you? 
you follow me. In other words, in a simple rhetoric, Jesus saying, Peter, mind your business. John's future is of no concern to you. We know that Peter has never shied away from asking sketchy questions, right? How many times should I forgive my brother? Peter. After Jesus essentially breaks the heart of the rich young ruler and sends him on his way, Peter's the one who steps up and says, Hey, listen, uh, excuse me, we left everything to follow you. What's in it for us? I'm sure they were all thinking the same thing, but Peter was just one of those, you know, hey, I'll, I'll get it out there. And uh, sure enough, he puts it out there, and I, I poor Jesus, I, I'm sure he's just kind of looking at Peter and thinking, oh, man. But to this question, Jesus does not have patience with Peter. And on the heels of everything that they both shared in this chapter, Jesus essentially saying, Peter, it's none of your business. He's being respectful, but he's being firm. You see, we need to remember that it was John who accompanied Mary to the cross in Jesus' final hours. It was John who stayed there. It's not John's loyalty and allegiance that needs to be questioned. It's not John's credibility that needs to be challenged and proven. It's Peter's. I think Jesus' firmness with Peter was all part and parcel of his restoration. Jesus had to make sure that Peter's priorities, once and for all, were settled. And his priority was simply this. Follow me. I know I didn't mention it earlier, but follow here again is the, the classic word that is used all throughout the Gospels. When Jesus says, if anyone wants to be my disciple, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Same word. But interestingly, interestingly enough in John, the word witness shows up time and time and time again. Matthew only uses it once, Luke only uses it once, and Mark never uses it at all. 33 times the word witness, or where we get our English word, martus, martyr, translated into, transliterated into martyr, comes from that Greek word. Well, to be a martyr was to be a witness... But by extension, as it made its way into the English language, martyr also meant to be to, to bear witness to the truth, even at the point of giving up one's own life. And so essentially Peter is saying this, or Jesus is saying this to Peter, that not only are you going to bear witness to me in preaching and in teaching and being the leader of this church, but in sufferings, in signs and wonders, in opposition endured, and eventually and ultimately you will bear witness with your very life when it's taken away. 
Why is this all important? What's the case I'm trying to build here? The point is simply this, is that in a few days, maybe a week or two, the most incredible event that would launch the church would take place. Jesus would ascend to the Father. The Holy Spirit would be poured out. The church would be launched into its mission, into um, bringing the gospel literally to the entire world. And Jesus wants to make sure that this up-and-down, toilet-seat, rugged, individualistic fisherman just wants to make sure that he's got it right, that he's ready, that he's signed on the dotted line, and that he's good to go. Conclusion. Loving Jesus means caring for his sheep, feeding his sheep, nurturing his sheep. I think all of us would agree that loving Jesus a lot of times is not really difficult. And when I say that, I mean that if you look at the depth of our love, our affection, our admiration, our worship, that which the heart knows that it knows towards Jesus, it's there. It really does not need to be questioned. But Jesus saying, listen, love for me is not only vertical, it's horizontal. You've got to love and care for my sheep. And let me tell you something, in case you haven't already noticed, there are some sheep that don't have that cute little ba aura about them. Right? Nice little ba. Sheep bite. They poop. They get themselves into trouble. They eat bad food. They wander. They they do stuff. And yeah, oh sheep. I, I remember like I, when I when I went into ministry. Like, I just, well, let me, let me back up. When I first got saved, I genuinely thought that there was nothing greater on the face of the earth than fellow Christians. I mean, like, you, you could almost picture me. Like, I'm, I, you know, just go back 30 years and picture me really given to extremes, right? So I came to faith, and, and I started attending a Pentecostal church, and I just thought all the Christians were nice and wonderful, and they would just love Jesus, and they were going to, you know, they wanted to read their Bible. And it took me about six weeks to realize that people didn't like me, that me and my happy face and my happy Bible thumping, and let's talk about Jesus. Do you want to pray? Can you tell me? It was like people are going like, you just go away. I was disillusioned and heartbroken. Fourteen months later, I about walked away from it all because I thought, you know what? Jesus' sheep are nasty. They're mean. They're grumpy. They're, they don't love Jesus. They, they play games. They lie. They, they don't want to read their Bible. They don't want to pray. They don't want to go to church. They don't want to listen to my testimony. They could care less. They don't want to share their faith. When I say, hey, would you like to go to the mall and, sh- and we'll tell people about Jesus? They looked at me like I had two heads. 
I said, okay, so that's, that's the way it works. Okay, all right. You know, there, I mean, there's another little story in the sermon in here. Yeah? Like, folks, 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 folks. I'm going to put my, my pastor's hat on, take off Mark's personal hat. When somebody comes to Christ, please do not be the reason and the excuse for them to stumble and walk away. Don't be a proverbial bucket of cold water on their fire. And if they get giddy and excited, don't do the, well, they'll mature eventually and become like me. God forbid. Oh, I met those types. Oh, man, if I could go back with a broom. That was the people of God. Then I started meeting up with pastors. And then, you know, the jokes would fly around. Oh, we love sheep. We love shearing sheep. You know? Tear a strip out of the sheep, you know? Ah, come here, you. Yeah, you like to grumble all year long. Well, now it's my chance to shear all that extra wool off of you. Hmm. Yeah, bah. I'm telling you, they weren't buying then. <laughs> well, that's another story. One of my favorite quotes from my favorite movie, Braveheart, is very interesting. Um, it it kind of goes like this. The freedom, the Scottish freedom fighter, William Wallace, as he's kind of arguing with the leaders of the country, he says, you know what, there's a difference between me and you. He says, you believe that your position or the people of this country exists to provide you with a position. I believe that your position is there to provide people with freedom, and I'm going to make sure that they get it. Powerful, powerful quote, right? Um, anyhow, enough said about that. But the thing is, is that we are called to love sheep as an expression of our love for Jesus. And I, I know it's been said 101 different ways. Um, it's been expressed and preached and taught, and I'm sure you've heard it over and over again, but... If you have an aversion to the body of Christ, if you don't want to be around other believers, if the only thing that comes out of your mouth when you see fellow Christians, and I know sometimes it, it takes all of the grace of God not to be that way, but to be mean and critical and hard-hearted and harsh and all that stuff, man, you've you, you got to get your heart unclogged. You kind of just need to go back and just say, Jesus, please help me, right? By this shall all men know that you are my apprentices. By your ability to cast out demons, plant churches, recite Leviticus in Hebrew. No, by your love for one another. Easy? Absolutely not. Essential? Absolutely. Moving from independence to interdependence, we come by our battle with individualism, very honestly, to be truthful, in the culture that we live in, and trying to overcome our rapid personal sense of independence sometimes almost seems futile. I, I just, I'll pick on me. I, I don't know what it is about my heart I understand my personality being something of an introvert at times and wanting space and time, but, you know, it, th th there's a dark side to it where it's kind of like, you know, like where, where you find yourself, well, I don't want to be around people. You know, I, I don't want to be around so-and-so, and I don't want to be around this person. I don't, well, for goodness sakes, who do you want to be around? Because being around yourself, that, I mean, that gets old really, really quick. 
But we, we, we have this sense of, if I didn't know any better, it's almost like everybody's just trying to make it for themselves and get out and get ahead at somebody else's expense, and there's no time to stop and slow down for the person behind you. And, and you know, like, we, it's, you know the, like the old joke, you know, it's us four and no more, right? There are all these little tiny tribes of people in the church kind of going about doing their own thing and, and oh, okay, it's Sunday. Well, we'll endure this for an hour and a half and come back and, whoa, it's, it's gone time. Whoa, zip, and everybody's gone all over the place. Um, you know, sometimes I just wonder if crises happen to us individually to wake us up to the fact that we need each other. And even in times like that when we... we you know, like we, we go through a hard time, we go through a hardship, a, a major crisis, and then we, well, you know, well, well, thank goodness I got the church. You know, I can always expect them to pray for me. I, you know, and we come back, oh, you know, please pray for me. I'm going through this and blah, 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 blah. And, and you know, God forbid that the church doesn't minister to them in a way that they feel entitled to be ministered to. Right? Well, okay, fine. Sure, like we, you know, sometimes... We don't hit a grand slam when it comes to pastoral care. Maybe sometimes it's just a base hit or a bunt. But the truth is, is if you haven't been around and you're gone and you can't be counted on, and when we need you to show some pastoral care, and it's like, don't call me, I'll call you, pastor. I'm not throwing that on you, but I'm just saying, like, we need each other. And we need to be there for each other. And there needs to be consistency in that. It needs to be the norm, not the exception. You know, ironically enough, in the end times, Matthew 24, 12, Jesus makes a statement, and I, you know, I just kind of scratched my head at it, and I thought, what are you saying? But he says, in these days, referring to the last days, the love of many will grow cold. The love of many. He's referring to his people. In other words, our hearts are going to face things that will make them cold to each other. We need to be on our guard. We cannot afford to let that happen. When you look at Paul's summary in 2 Timothy chapter 3 about the conditions of the heart in the last days amongst God's people... It's even worse than that. You almost get a sense that some of the meanest people you'll ever meet are Christians. Happy Canada Day. I'm digging all the way. <laughs> okay, I'll be nice. You know, you walk in here, and I've said, this is my big, you know, here's my markism, my, my, my punchline for small groups. We walk in here, and there's a sense of community we feel whenever we arrive here. But it's nothing compared to the substance of community that we form when we choose to stay here and work on it. You know, I, I've seen marriages in my lifetime where you look at it and you could just sense the love. The, you know, you could tell that the marriage has depth and profundity. The, the, the marriage has substance. And, and, you know, you romanticize that, and you think, oh, isn't that wonderful? Look at this couple, you know, they're in their 70s, and they love on each other, and it's just, man, I, you know, I want that, I want that, I want that. But we don't want the 40 years of 
conflict management and communication and forgiveness and pain and confession and vulnerability and transparency and intimacy and pushing away and coming back and working through the nitty-gritty of the marriage, the substance of marriage, to arrive at that. Right? We, 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 we love the couple sitting there and the, you know, we, the aura that we feel. But they didn't get there overnight. The body of Christ doesn't get there overnight. The relationships that we have have to be formed intentionally. And our independence is probably the greatest threat to it. And we're living in a culture that is feeding us bad food for our, in, our independence every day, whether we like it or not. We're drinking from that well, whether we like it or not. And we have to be intentional and open to the Holy Spirit in dramatic ways to actually cultivate responsive, respectable, committed, continuing love for one another. I'll stop there. Last one, and this is, this is the hard one, really. Not all crosses are the same. Not all crosses are the same. This is a hard one to face, let alone trying to figure out. And of course, I'm alluding to the fact that Peter's dismay at being told that he's going to face martyrdom. And, you know, you can almost understand, right? Like he's kind of going, okay, uh, what about him? That's none of your business. Oh, okay. There are members in the body of Christ who within the unsearchable ways and purposes and wisdom of God inherit a cross to bear that, to be quite blunt, seems so unfair and incomprehensible. And I'm the kind of person that just wrestles with stuff like that to the point where I just, I get all in knots. It seems like the more I try to figure it out, the worse it seems. And the only analogy I can think of is like having a black smudge on a white shirt, and the more you try to clean it and get the smudge out, just the worse it gets, right? There are individuals in the body of Christ who, how else do you say it? They have been given a cross to bear. Thank God, like this is, no, this is wrong. Not, not this, well, Oh, like we, we, we do that. We, we, if we have a heart and we see the crosses that each one of us bear, we're bound to sit back and go, God, please, not that one. They can't bear that. And the truth is, is that sufficient grace will always be given to suit the cross that we are called to bear. And at times, I you know Jesus says, my grace is sufficient. And it's like, there's a part of me that just wants to say, well, I don't care if it's sufficient. I don't care. I don't want this cross. I don't want this person to have this cross. I don't want that family to bear that cross. I don't want that person to bear that cross. I don't care. But it's none of my business. In, in, in terms of questioning God. When we compare our lives with each other, we set ourselves up for, for problems. Jesus called us to count the cost of serving him, he didn't say compare the cost, count the cost. 
Because there have been times, and I'll pick on myself, where I've compared the cost of following him to somebody else's cost of following him, and it's created resentment, contempt, criticism, self-pity, you know, throwing a pity party, and then nobody's RSVP yet, right? I'm feeling sorry for myself because I think I've got it hard. Anybody want to come and cry with me? Cricket, cricket, cricket. We should not expect others to have to bear the same cross as we are called to do, but neither should we exempt ourselves from bearing our cross because another person's cross appears to be much easier to bear. Let me see that one more time. It's a mouthful. I'm sorry. I, I just, sometimes I just can't get to the point. We should not expect others to have to bear the same cross as we are called to do. But neither should we exempt ourselves or be excused from bearing our cross because another person's cross appears to be much easier to bear. I don't know why Jesus purposed for John just to simply die of old age in Ephesus, an elder man, and Peter be crucified. Right? I mean, we look back as 2,000 years ago, ah, well, whatever, you know, they're, they're the apostles, they saw Jesus, I mean, they're going straight to heaven, but, but still, why should one person die of old age, and why should the other person be crucified as an old man to a cross? But in the purposes of God, that's the way things unfolded. And if you look at the history of the martyrs and the people who have paid an unbelievable price for following Jesus, here are we sitting on a Sunday morning we don't have to worry about anybody barging through our doors with an, an AK-47 shooting us up because we're worshiping Jesus. Why do we enjoy freedom and other people have to meet in private, in, in, in holes, in underground, and, and in darkness? I don't have an answer for that. Yeah, time's up. So, that's it. Yeah, it really is. That was, that was my last point. No one knows why some people preach so long and others can just preach to the point. The questions of Jesus led to Peter's restoration, his reinstatement. And yet the questions of Jesus also put Peter in his place, so to speak, about his future. For all of us here today, the questions of Jesus likewise have a way of settling things for us. Maybe today, you're like Peter in the sense that God has called you to do something and you have failed Him miserably. You have rebelled, maybe in a single act of cowardness or weakness. You just... You threw it away. You said, I'm not going to be, this, I'm not paying that price. Please understand that I think Peter serves to us as a beautiful example of a life that is lived up and down, but ultimately gets it right by God's grace to finish strong. And that could be extended to you. That could be your story as well. Today, there are some of us who 
can't seem to move ahead because we've got our eyes on other people and we're just wondering, well, why do they have it so easy? Why do they have it so good and I don't? And in your comparison, in, in your... You're stuck. You've stayed at a certain point and you can't move beyond. Irrespective of who you are, I believe that Jesus wants you to move on. And I think he's just saying to you, listen, follow me. That's the only way things are going to make sense. My grace will be sufficient for you. But you just got to stop looking at other people and, and making checks and ticks and making comparison and wondering who's got it better, who's got it worse. It's, that is a recipe. That is a recipe for disillusionment and discouragement. So I don't want to prolong this. I understand that it's, it, you've got a beautiful weekend to celebrate, but I don't want to lose this opportunity to pray for you if you find yourself anywhere within the scope of this message. So I'm going to invite the prayer team to come forward and come down. We're not going to prolong this, but we're here to pray with you. So please come forward. And then as a way of closing, Tyler's going to lead us in this beautiful, beautiful song of committal. And I think that we will all be able to resonate with the rendition of this beautiful old hymn in contemporary form.